Greetings, future fossils, and welcome to another episode of the show that explores our place in time. After all, how can we know who we are if we don't know how we fit into a bigger picture? I saw a photograph on Instagram today that presented a handful of recognizable brand logos and juxtaposed it with not necessarily identifiable tree leaves and said, identify these brands and identify these plants, making the point that most of us are horribly and (laughs) inexcusably divorced from our natural context, from our animal nature, from our reality as stardust, as Carl Sagan would put it, our, our mineral identity. Layers of history and depth and meaning that come together to create a human being. And of course, if we're just a collection of brand identities and ideological fixations, then we're not really complete people, are we? We're just like ghosts without feet, without grounding in our world. Of course, it's never a simple binary like that. There is another creature familiar to all of us that has a human face and hands, but not feet. And I am, of course, talking about the mermaid. Mermaids like centaurs are a kind of emblem of a complete human being, someone that has integrated all of these different dimensions of our nature. And so mermaid performance actually provides a really interesting venue or vehicle for people to touch through the fun and the play to welcome us back into a more intimate and personal relationship with nature. And so it's really cool to witness the mermaid as a symbol of this larger sense of our humanity that we have largely forgotten in our move to the modern world. That's why I was really glad to talk to Lindsay Lofton today. My friend Lindsay is a professional mermaid and kick-ass water conservation activist. And uh, we really explore all of the different angles and dimensions of mermaidhood. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I suspect that you will also. But before we get into that, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who has been rating this show on iTunes. Your five-star reviews make an enormous difference in terms of the discoverability of this show and ultimately my ability to sustain myself with this project and continue to spend my time gathering meaningful conversations with interesting people for the benefit of all posterity. It really just is not enough to find amazing people and sit down with them for a chat. It really does take a bit of a hustle to make sure that everyone who can benefit from these talks gets to hear them. And so I'm deeply, deeply grateful to everybody who's been rating the show. Also, those of you who have been sharing the show with your friends, telling your friends about it. And of course, everyone who's been supporting the show on Patreon. That is huge. Patreon.com slash Michael Garfield has allowed me to offer you more. Since I started using Patreon, my perspective on creative work has really changed. And I am so much more alive with a sense of service to you. And it gives me a chance to treat you extra well by giving you all of my new music, like the stuff that you're hearing now, as well as exclusive podcast episodes and early access to excerpts from my upcoming book on the future evolution of human consciousness and creativity. I'm also hard at work on a psychedelic coloring book for Patreon supporters. 
Special shout out to new patron Andrew Perrine for not only joining the exclusive roster of Future Fossils patrons, but also for tweeting about it. That made my day. I love connecting with you directly. So if you have thoughts or questions or feedback about the show, or you want to suggest a new guest, drop me an email at futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. And with that, let's jump into this delightful conversation with my friend and professional mermaid, Lindsay Lofton. The water is fine. So, hey, thanks for coming over. This is a rare and special opportunity to interview somebody in my house, which Austin is in the Austin area are full of interesting people. And I'm really enjoying getting to finally utilize this space. So thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. All right. So you are a mermaid. I haven't had a mermaid on the show yet. So why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got into that, why you got into that, et cetera. <laughs> and what it's like to be a mermaid, what that looks like Ooh, that's on a, a daily basis. And then... <laughs> And then we can start to unpack mermaid mythology and other big picture shit. <laughs> awesome. I'm so stoked to be the first one because it is kind of an explosion right now. I don't know if you've noticed how know many mermaid things are occurring right now. I don't think it's a mistake or an accident that mermaids have suddenly entered full front into consciousness in our culture and globally there's there's mermaids in singapore now like professional mermaids doing what i do it's really everywhere at this point um but i just i got into mermaiding basically because it was absolutely the right thing to do at the time so i was a professional essentially professional level swimmer when i was in high school which people would probably never guess about me i'm you know, 100 pounds, 5'4", but I used to be able to do, you know, 60 push-ups in two minutes and was a total beast in the pool. Yeah, so I was excellent in swimming, felt more comfortable underwater than on land. You know, the typical mermaid story, pretty much how most people get into it was, you know, growing up at the ocean or in the water. And um, I guess having red hair doesn't hurt either because it just made sense the most popular mermaid archetype in America is the little mermaid and right. basically I've been told my whole life I look like the little mermaid when I swim. It's you got been, the seashell bra and everything. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been a thing since way before I ever imagined doing this. I mean, I thought I was going to be a park ranger. That was my ultimate goal. I used to work for the Fish and Wildlife Service and then budget cuts occurred and the government had to switch roles, started working with kids, uh, teaching them to read, and it was great, but I just realized I didn't want to be a public school teacher that wasn't fully utilizing my skills, basically, and I wasn't really allowed to fully be myself. I felt like I was living two lives, like I was hiding who I really was because I had to look a certain way, and I couldn't hug the kids, and I couldn't talk to them about certain things, and all day wasn't just science, it was Time to teach you math and Wait other a minute. things. So you were living on land, but you couldn't <laughs> talk about your underwater experience. No. <laughs> I could barely talk about science a third of the time that I wanted to. But, of course, when I was student teaching, it happened to be the oceans unit in kindergarten. And my teacher literally just, my mentor, handed it to me and said, you're doing this. 
I could not possibly do this better than you. And, you know, I had them making Play-Doh fish and learning all the anatomy of fish and all the other kindergarten teachers were like, what the heck, where do I get one of these, you know, assistants or whatever. They were so jealous because I was just owned the oceans unit, basically. And so when I realized how much happier I was just being allowed to only do the science part of teaching, I realized I had to change jobs. I completely dropped out of school didn't have a backup plan and was hired by the city of Austin within two weeks on a reference from an assistant principal at a school. I used to teach gardening after school at this really low income school. And they basically said like, there's no way you're going to get these kids to garden. There's no way. And in a week they were all like completely covered in dirt, like planting tomatoes. So he was like, you're amazing. I'm going to just send them your resume. Don't even apply. And I got the job within two weeks. So I started teaching water quality science, and I loved it. I've been doing it for two years. I actually still work there. And I basically realized, um, you know, this is great. I get to go in caves with kids. We clean up creeks together. It's awesome. And yet the arts component is was totally missing. And so my inner artist was like, basically dying <laughs> it was like you could be doing this in your own way and you have more to offer and you know it's a seasonal job so I only get given so much responsibility so I was like why don't I just create my own thing and why don't I just be a mermaid while I do it and so basically at the time in Austin and I believe this is still true I'm the only educational mermaid and I actually got offered to be the official Barton Springs mermaid so now whenever they have salamander talks I oh. like I'm I'm doing this like for the animals. <laughs> okay, so you were saying Barton Springs asked you to be a mermaid. Yeah, so basically okay. the city the city wanted to increase attendance to their endangered species salamander talks because they had really low attendance traditionally because people didn't really know what it was and it sounded kind of boring, I think, to the general public. So what they did was they decided, oh, a great way to get more families is to have this person who already works here that we know is not going to do anything weird or charge us a billion dollars to come be a mermaid. And so I went to my first event and they had a thousand people interested on Facebook where previously the max they had was 30. So as soon as they get a mermaid on the scene, there's a bajillion people filling up the arena. Is it? Do you think it's just because... Uh, salamander has no sex appeal? <laughs> I hope not. I really try to be um, not sexualized as a mermaid as much as possible. So, for example, when I do kids' parties, I wear the seashell bra, but I wear a scarf, too. So I tone it down a lot more than like other mermaids. Scarf. Uh, essentially, it's this cute little uh, pink scarf with seashells on it, and it just is a little bit more modest, because we are still in central Texas, if you think about it, and the city, you know, working with young children wants to send a certain message, and I also try to avoid getting creeped on while I'm working. Well, I'm going to say, legally, <laughs> legally in Austin, you can go topless. You can, but not at a school. That's like authentic. <laughs> authentic mermaids are topless. That would be awesome, and but, I let's mean, move towards that as a culture. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm but all again, for it. you gotta, you got to pick your battles. You really do, and for me, it's all about um, basically maintaining access to work with these vulnerable populations. So, you know, maintaining the trust that I have in the school district with families and with, you know, government organizations. Mm -hmm. Because I have had such a rapport historically with all these 
you know, federal background check level, you know, systems, I've basically been allowed to do things that, you know, traditionally would have been seen as like too risque or too weird. And I'm allowed, yet I'm allowed to do it because I've worked so hard to maintain those relationships and kind of get through those initial hoops, ironically. So what is it, what do you think it is about the mermaid that grants a conservation event a 300x bonus in terms of interest and attendance? I mean, we're... What are we dealing with here that is tapping into the collective conscious that is, you know, that makes, you know, I mean, because the obvious comparison is is somebody like Hannah Frazier, right? Mm-hmm. Who's like the sort of rock star professional mermaid these days. She's the original. She's the first freelance mermaid in the world. Really? That's why she's so... And many other reasons, but that's one of the main reasons she's the most known is because she's been doing it before it was accessible for other people to do. She made her own first tale. So that's why she has been so successful, I think, and she's awesome for that. Yeah, so she's doing a you know kind of a similar thing where she's doing like shark conservation videos, mm-hmm. swimming with sharks and stuff. So... Is it just seeing ourselves somehow reflected in the aquatic realm that makes it, you know, like, for example, like a song lyrics make a piece of music more approachable or a portrait is more approachable than an abstract painting. And it's like, do we, are we so selfish that we need a mermaid to care about the ocean or what, what do you think is going on here? I would, I would really like to think it's not that. Um, I would prefer to think, and this is how I th- would, you know, go about. You know, I think we create a reality, so I try to frame my thoughts around what I'd like it, it to be, rather than maybe what even sometimes my observations could indicate. So mm-hmm. for me, it's more um, about children just needing a little bit more magic and simulation because especially my target audience is different i believe than a lot of other mermaids i really do focus on families and that's why i kind of try to be a little bit more modest honestly and less i go less for the easy in my opinion more easy sexualized mermaid thing you know that's been done a lot but i really haven't seen that much basically i want to be the bill nye of mermaids i want to be militant and kind of a jerk no well yeah so his (laughs) personality on tv though is that he's this entertaining like approachable science guy you know the the person that kids trust and want to meet he was my hero when i was a kid he was he was so cool yeah Yeah. so i want to be that for kids but i want to be the girl version of that i didn't see any women doing that growing up i mean my heroes were all men jacques cousteau um steve Irwin, and bill nye but where were the women and so to me mermaids allow for this image to be in people's minds that you know, girls can be badasses too. You know, when they see a woman under the water in this crazy tail swimming next to a tiger shark, it blows their mind because they've ne- probably never seen an image like that before. And so I think when little girls see me holding my breath for two minutes and swimming around Burton Springs, it blows their mind. They've never seen a person do that. And so 
when especially when they know I'm actually just a human, right. <laughs> then it kind of is even extra special sometimes because there's this element of of inspiration that happens where, you know, basically the girls are particular girls are seeing, you know, whoa, this could be for me. Like science is not what I thought it was. That's basically my whole approach to mermaiding is trying to change what people see scientists as. Do you ever actually do science while you're wearing a mermaid tail? Sometimes. I what's, do water quality tests that are basic, like a pH test is appropriate for really young children, and I can explain to them what that could indicate about water. We can do macroinvertebrate sampling. We can clean water with by picking up litter. So there are things that I do that are related directly to water quality science that I can do as a mermaid, and that makes it all relevant or I can be with a salamander biologist while they talk about the species and basically be like this is cool (laughs) basically I'm the cool scientist that makes the kids actually want to listen to the biologist scientist that just looks like their traditional image of what a scientist is so it makes it more more interesting basically Mm. yeah because there is something about I'm a Capricorn right which I bring up every episode of this show for no good reason <laughs> that you're but, <laughs> but but it's this thing about you know a lot of these zodiacal signs are a thing like a crab or a bull but there's the capricorn which is a goat fish and it, it just it's funny because to me like that that sign is associated with ambition and it's been associated with ambition for thousands of years and so we have this uh, this weird coincidence that, you know, 150 years ago, we get the origin of species and people start talking about animals coming out of the ocean and the whole myth of evolutionary ascent is this, is, you know, sort of contained in this image of an amphibian of this thing that's like crawling out of the sea in order, you know, it's like half super fish. Creepy. <laughs> yeah. And it's, they, they, yeah, the old ones are all super creepy looking. Um, like they, you know, the oh, freaky creatures, but, but they, it's, it's sort of those, uh, like panderic this and these early tetrapods are, sort of like the Capricorn. They're like, the, you know, at least in the like far side, Gary Larson. <laughs> yeah. Kind of version. <laughs> you know, they're like, it's like they're, you know, they've knocked the baseball out of, out onto dry land and they have to go for it. And it's like that. Yeah. That reaching that striving is all contained in this image. And yet I guess almost in a way like the, uh, the opposite is true for the mermaid in a way, like the mermaids are often, at least historically depicted as like sirens or as uh, dangerous as as like drawing sailors down and drowning Ugh. them. And I specifically so, avoid being called a siren or associating with that word. Yeah, I definitely prefer mermaid because there is a very different cultural context and history behind the words. Yeah. So do you? I mean, this issue of the boundary, you know, of like crawling out of the water but also calling in like calling back into the water mm-hmm. and and living on the that sort of liminal 
space, like in the intertidal zones and stuff. And I, I don't know what that draws up for you in terms of maybe the resonance with your own personal life or a larger sense of importance. I have something really okay, yeah. to say based on what you were saying. So for me, the mermaid, if I'm going to be honest, didn't just come from this total logical place. It actually came from a totally different place in part. It came from my shamanic work that I do and the spiritual healing that I do. I am a, a licensed emotional freedom technique practitioner. I've done Sonia Sophia's training twice. I'm super heavily invested in that community and that work as well. So for me, what mermaids represent and why I think it's so valuable for my life to be another representation of that in our culture is because I do believe that we as a society, it's our time to return to the water, at least in our focus and in our awareness. Because, you know, the way that our culture is going is so far removed from any sort of connection to nature, as I've come to understand it. And so that's a systemic illness, in my opinion. And so as a healer, where my work mainly lies, in my opinion, is um, healing that rift and that illness. So if I can connect children to nature in specific water, then I'm doing my job and I'm living my purpose. And for me, there are different animal archetypes that I'm connected with that are about healing major issues, pulling up our files from the past, and basically reminding us on a species level what we're here for and how far we've come from where I believe we're supposed to be headed and where we should be, you know, in as far as how we relate with our environment and ultimately ourselves. I keep thinking about how in a few years, you know, like there's all of these, this sort of Rule 34 stuff going on with the internet and the revival of our interest in various mythological tropes. And, you know, for, you know, for example, my partner and I were just joking the other day that you can kind of combine any two things and then find merchandise of those, like, you know, like years ago, we looked up angel squid, and it turns out there's all this chibi angel squid shit online. But then we <laughs> did it. No again. We did it again the other day. We were like uh, unicorn owl, you know, and it's like she was trying to explain this this sort of weird, otherworldly uh, experience that she had in a dream, and it was just like just the closest thing she could get. And then we just Googled unicorn owl, and it's like it should not be at all surprised now that there's this. Uh, all of this stuff on Etsy and like Redbubble and stuff. That's the unicorn owl. And it just seems almost, yeah, it just seems like, um, that we are approaching some sort of critical mass with combinations of things. And that this is maybe anticipating the moment that we get to with gene engineering that we can give ourselves wings or tentacles or a flipper or whatever. And, and that, that like everyone wants to be more than they are, you know, like this, like that episode of South Park where Kyle's dad tries to turn himself into a dolphin. Yes. You know, like that, like that there is this thing. It's like all of us want that we're, we're so invested in, 
in all of these different sort of totemic energies and that people sewing their own mermaid tails and selling them online is just like the so last century version of us getting to actually give ourselves actual gills and mermaid tails and stuff. And I mean, this is where my head is going. Like, totally. you, you just, I would just, you know, you seem to me like a, a pioneer in sort of the, uh, the politics of like a fluid identity mm-hmm. and like pushing that boundary of what it means to be a human being. Wow. At all. So, like, that's, in a way, that's, like, the opposite of, it would seem like the opposite of, like, getting back to nature in this, like, really basic, simple way, you know, and just, like, drawing our attention to the environment as it exists. But at the same time, inspiring little girls to be a mermaid is sort of giving them this very progressive stake in deciding who they will be, who like, what they want to become, you know, like kind of a Lady Gaga vibe, <laughs> but like beyond even like you have to be a human being. Like you can be, you know, like I want to be a dinosaur when I grow up. You <laughs> I know, hope so. like that kind of that kind of stuff. So I mean, and and in that you get this sense of common identity with the rest of the genetic plenum. Like you know, you're you're not distinguished from the rest of the living world as merely a human being. You know, like the way that we've always used our humanity to set ourselves apart. And now we could say, well, it, it, it ain't like that. Like we, we can, um, we can kind of be whatever we want. You know, I'm talking like a hundred years from now or mm-hmm. whatever it is. But like, if we can be, if we can change, if we can shape shift, then we, you know, in the same, like the, you were talking about your shamanic work, like shamanic shape shifting it's all like, I'm going to turn into a raven or I'm going to turn into a wolf. Or it's like, it's a sense of bringing ourselves back into a sense of common identity with the other uh, creatures, like our other, you know, all of these other animals. So That's the, amazing. the mermaid thing is like, um, maybe it's a bridge for people. It's like, like Neil Shubin talks about like your inner fish evolutionarily. Mm-hmm. It's a bridge to people having a sense of identity with the ocean. And I guess that's kind of what I was saying earlier about seeing so. your own face in the image. Yeah, I mean, so something that's different about me that I've noticed when I go outside than almost anyone else that I've ever gone outside with, because really when you take large groups of people outside, no two people react to nature in the same way or experience it in the same way. And so the way I experience going outside is on a kind of like a landscape level, which if as an ecologist, you know, basically I'm mapping in my brain how energy is flowing from the air into that tree, into me, into the soil, the water going across the landscape, where that's going, what animals are here. I'm seeing all of that at the same time. And a lot of other people get stuck on the, I just got a mosquito bite or oh gosh, this tree is so beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, the tree is beautiful, but I can often be distracted by like the five birds that I'm looking at in that tree that no one else even saw. And so for me, it's mermaiding is definitely about that, about creating kind of this 
bridge for people where they don't see themselves outside of nature or even see themselves outside of within the ability to evolve you know like I consider myself to be constantly evolving and you know developing basically new superpowers we have the internet now we can learn anything we want pretty much with one click if we decide to I didn't know how to put a mermaid tail on which is a whole process by the way when I first got one, but you can learn it in 20 minutes now. It wasn't previously accessible to people. So yeah, we're definitely moving forward as a species. And it's kind of interesting, you're right, about how that might mean we're getting closer to nature, but it doesn't look like, I think, how people 100 years ago would have described that, because how could they imagine that we would have the internet? Yeah, well, it's like nature itself has changed in the sense that, you know, uh, James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, you know, that nothing on this planet isn't artificial on some level anymore, that the atmosphere itself was created by bacteria. And so we have, you know, the atmosphere is an artifact Mm -hmm. of life. And so this notion that a city, I remember in high school when we were studying the transcendental romantic poets that there was this exercise where we were asked to go out behind our house and or you know or wherever we were go out into nature somewhere and i had you know a pretty generous stretch of woods behind my house at the time so i went out there but it was next to the railroad and it was just a few miles from the airport and you know on a kind of a major state highway and so there was no there was just all this vehicle noise even at night and you know trains would go by and planes would fly overhead and at it took me like half an hour of sitting there waiting for my walden moment you know where i'm like ah this is what it is to be truly wild in in nature and i just was like wait a minute this all of this stuff is natural like you know even if it was sculpted by human intention our intention is itself sculpted by the evolutionary process which is distributed and blind and so we're not really we're not really outside of nature even our attempts to separate ourselves from nature are still it's like i don't know if you saw westworld but like Okay, so there's this scene where the the android is looking at its own code on a computer, and it's, like, seeing its own thoughts happening, and just, you know, like, we can look right at it and still not transcend our own programming. Or, like, Galen Strawson at the University of Texas talks about that with free will. He's, you know, the whole art, the very simple argument against free will in his case is everything that you want to do is based on your personal history, your evolutionary history, your desires are all sculpted by your environment. Epigenetic. Yeah, none of this <laughs> stuff is really yours. Like, you don't belong to yourself in this, in that sense. Like, you're something that the landscape is doing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this, all of this, you know, like, Japanese game shows and, you know, like, as seen on TV you know, egg cooker nonsense is all just 
you know, like slime in a hot springs. Like it's not, it's not different. And I don't know. So, but then you get into the weird, you get into like the fact that nature is now simulating itself, that there's this whole like nextnature.net gets into that, that we're, you know, our proliferation of like all, like almost every corporate logo is an animal or a plant of some kind that we're all still totally fixated on in our artifice. We're recreating our natural environment that we've, that we're destroying in the process of recreating it, which is... We're a little lost. Yeah, it's like, we're like, we're like the ocean's full of plastic fish right now. Like, what the hell? So... And and technically then, so are we. mm, Yeah. yeah. So that's where, that's where um, my landscape perspective has, in my opinion, really helped shape me on accident entirely into an activist, is that I cannot ignore my understanding of the connection and on a systems level, how our actions are creating reactions within our own health and within our own bodies at this point, I can pretty much guarantee you that you've drank plastic within the last week, Mm. at least some part molecules of it, because at this point, you know, plastic, it never goes away. It does something called photodegrade. It never actually decomposes, which means it would turn into an organic material. So as soon as we do any kind of inorganic chemical process to these materials, we have basically irrevocably at this point turned them into something that won't basically work with our system because we are made of organic materials. So when those meet us, it's causing all kinds of symptoms within us, such as cancer. So what happens is instead of actually decomposing plastic, photodegrades, when sunlight hits it, it can take up to 100 years, but it does break into unrecognizable tiny parts of plastic. So basically a water bottle within 100 years of sitting outside with sun just hitting it, it would break into such small particles that you couldn't ever tell that was a water bottle, and yet it's still just as plastic as it was when it was a water bottle. And so when that gets that small, things like us start being able to reabsorb it into the system. And so essentially we are becoming plastic. Well, is that really, I mean, everybody talks about this being a permanent thing, but there are like strains of fungus that will metabolize plastic. And there's you know, it seems like in the sort of market sense of this, that there's an obvious and great demand for us to come up with genetically modified life forms that will eat plastic, you know, that we can release these, you know, plastic eating microbes into it, or like not, maybe not even release them, but like use them in like a like a factory setting or something where we can scoop up all the plastic with drones and then send it, you know, send it back to, it just doesn't seem like, you know, cause okay. Like let's frame this, right? Like getting back to that issue of the mm-hmm. atmosphere. So you get cyanobacteria invent photosynthesis and they flood the atmosphere with oxygen. And at the time everything is anaerobic. And so oxygen's a poison and it leads to maybe the first mass extinction on the planet. And then we get aerobic metabolisms that evolve in response to that. 
so it's like in a way what we're seeing now with the industrial revolution is the mirror image of that first catastrophe that life created where it found a way to capitalize on abundant free energy and it generated like all of this atmospheric pollution and all of that pollution created a new new life forms or like led to the opportunity for these new life forms to come in and create sort of a counter metabolism and it just seems so obvious that like what we're set that we that every everything is set now the whole stage is like ready for the plastic eating metabolism to show up and just totally rock out that we're but like creating how a new much time, creature yeah do we have so yeah. as someone who works with other people's children i could not possibly stand the thought of sitting here and waiting for that. It just doesn't make sense to me as a person who is personally connected to the next generation and perhaps the generation after that. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, artifacts that we're leaving behind. Well, I hope, you know, this recording will be proof to those generations that people did care and that we did not just wait around and count on such an event to be what's going to work out for them. You know, like I wouldn't bet on it is essentially where I'm at because what's happening is we're seeing birth defects in children. We're seeing a ton of reproductive stress because what plastic does in your system is it changes your estrogen level. It increases it and that causes infertility. We're seeing it in whales and we're seeing it in humans. And so if we're going to have a next generation, in my opinion, we just need to be using less plastic because the more our hormones get messed with by this absorption that most people are unaware of, um, then it's just basically creating, in my opinion, a pretty serious situation. It really does, like, to, on a more personal level, it really does mess with my head to think that I've been using birth control all these years and that I could be actually sterile and I might not have needed it at, in the first place. And that I'm just sort of like putting off this moment where I, like in my, you know, ostensible carefulness, I discover that I drank one too many plastic water bottles I left in a hot car or something. And now I'm actually sterile this whole time. And that safe sex was pointless, which would suck in like a number of different ways. I guess I'm not, I'm not really advocating that we just wait around. I guess I'm, I'm this is more like a call to action. Like, to keep inventing and yeah, discovering like, yeah, to be, really to like, aggressively. Yeah, to find yeah. out like what, you know, what we can do. Because I think basically, I'm just saying, I think that the, to keep the aquatic metaphor game strong, like I think yes. as far as like us, getting you know that as far as us not like avoiding genetic modification of our environment that ship has sailed you know i'm definitely and, not against it and yet mm -hmm. like these i mean it's it's all so delicate but it's like what's the i mean we, we have to at this point start acting out of an idea of like, well, the balance has been destroyed. So we at least need to come up with ways to establish a new balance that sort of enables that old balance to reestablish itself. Does that make sense? It does. And I, and I completely, I completely 
support and am in favor of this continued research. And I hope that these companies that have the money to fund such research and innovation will put their money where our future is, if that makes sense. Because right now, in my view, that's not the case, or we would already have it, if that makes sense. Like, could plastic-eating bacteria be used to generate the electricity required to mine Bitcoin? <laughs> like, I feel like there's got... Where's the, where's the profit, you know, other than just, like... I don't know. Like, we got to find the the sweet spot, you know, that makes this applicable to big business. Or maybe it's not even, maybe we can't even rely on big business. I, I personally am, essentially, the way that I see my life headed is pulling completely out of that system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see, I see myself headed more towards a permacultural, small-scale, localized lifestyle, ironically, because... You know, when people think of mermaids, they think of these jet-setting models is my general, um, what I get from people. And so, you know, I don't even have an Instagram <laughs> account. So when people hear that, they're like, but you're a mermaid, you're a model. And How I'm can like, you not have Instagram? Yeah, so the, so the issue is I'm not really a model. That part of me is the fake part, you know? Like, mm. I, that part of me is the illusion, if you will, of my mermaid, you know? I have to take interesting pictures to get people's attention, yes. But the the main thing that is this is basically my platform for the conversations we're having right now. And so as a woman in the science field and as a young person in the science field and all these other things, I can't get through to people through like trying to write a paper right now and getting it peer-reviewed. That's not my access point to being heard in these ways. So instead... I've chosen to dress up like a half human, half fish and speak my mind and mostly speak to children because they are the ones who get to start making choices, you know, like essentially growing up, I was given Lunchables every day. I was not informed how I might be eating that Lunchable in 70 years, if that makes sense, or drinking Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) And when I tell kids that, they instantly are less interested in their Gatorade. So I think it does have real lasting effects, especially on kids, because when you show them, for example, there's this activity that Keep Austin Beautiful does that's called the Litter Lifeline, Mm -hmm. where you have children have this timeline of, you know, one month to never, which is the rate of litter disappearing or becoming unrecognizable and either completely re-entering our organic system or, you know, basically remaining out there in some smaller form that, you know, could or could not be affecting us. And what they essentially discover through their guesses and then me correcting them on how long it will take is that things like styrofoam don't go away and things like paper could go away in three months if they're just left on the ground. And so kids are basically just like, oh my gosh, you're telling me that that chip bag might be here for 500 years and then my grandkids might eat it. And it's like, okay, that doesn't sound like the choice I want to make tomorrow when I'm picking what I want from the grocery store Mm -hmm. with mom. And so Mom probably has never heard that information, but if if mom hears it from their child, can you imagine the difference? Because a lot of adults, if you just go directly to them, would they actually tell their kid that? Probably not. 
because they're afraid it's too disturbing or it's too real or it's over their head. Or I would argue because they don't want to freaking think about it because the chips are the cheapest choice. Well, there is that thing yeah. about being a parent and about, I don't, I don't remember who it was that I was, I was hearing this conversation. They were, the guy was saying basically like, I have to be an optimist because I'm a parent. And you basically, you're in, you're sort of imprisoned by necessity at that point. Like you really have to believe that your kids are growing up into a world that's not just total bust, right? But, uh, yeah, so I think that that's part of it is that like, you don't want to terrify your kids, you know? And that's why you have the mermaid tell them. And then you have the mermaid tell them their alternative choice. You, you introduce to them homemade sweet potato chips. Takes 15 minutes. You can do this at home. Hand them a recipe card. It's not about just scaring them to death. It's about presenting them with the truth because they're humans too. You know, a lot of the time adults forget that kids are autonomous beings that have the abilities to make independent choices. But if you don't inform them of their choices... They're going to continuously make the wrong ones that you're making, basically. So the, our kids essentially will never be allowed to do a better job at being a good human, in my opinion, if they're only allowed to do what their parents show them to do. And so essentially, I like being that person that gets to give them a chance to make a different choice by being able to make an actual informed decision because Mm -hmm. a lot of adults would never give kids that opportunity because maybe they were never given it. So they weren't shown that as modeling for being a good parent or because they're afraid because a lot of people are afraid to talk about this stuff because it is really intense, but I'm not afraid to talk about it because it's really intense and I really want to do something about it. And kids often come up and hug me after I tell them about this because what they feel instead of being really afraid is often just really touched that someone would care about them enough to come into their school and use their time every day. They know I don't get paid a million dollars to do this. Kids often ask me, how much do you make? Because they're confused as to why I would do this. (laughs) (laughs) But what they do understand is that I care about them and that's why I'm doing it. Or I care about animals and that's why I'm doing that and a lot of kids love animals you know most kids when they're in fourth grade the animal unit is like the best thing that ever happened in their life they think it's the coolest thing ever and so um basically I just think we need to keep creating opportunities for kids to get real information even if it is you know jarring hmm let's talk about whales Let's do it. Yeah, because you definitely were getting into some some whale stuff, <laughs> you and I before before this, and it yes. does seem like whales are, uh, well, you know, like extinction tends to proceed. It seems like extinction often proceeds from the top down, as far as like large animals go first because they're more reliant on mature ecosystems and because. You know, they're, they're sort of more susceptible to that kind of change. You know, mm-hmm. it's like dinosaurs are going to die out, but, you know, but turtles and snakes and birds are not going to die out. <laughs> Cockroaches are not going to die out. Like something has to kill it, its way all the way down that, that chain to get to cockroaches. 
And then the bacteria are still going to be fine. So, like, whales are are sort of the, on the one hand, the charismatic species that we can very easily mobilize conservation attention with, but then also they're sort of one of the more precarious organisms to begin with. And, and it's like they're the, they're the place that we look if we're looking at the health of ocean ecosystems in particular. Mm-hmm. So, but then also there's this, this sort of, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, a link between whales and mermaids too. So I don't know, like where, where does all of this stuff sit for you? Like, where's, what are the, the connections and the, 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 the thoughts leading out from that? Yeah, I guess. So about three years ago, I had a friend um, actually suddenly die in a car wreck. And it was the first time I had had someone I was close with or knew well just disappear overnight and not come back. And so it was this moment of like, oh, gosh, yeah, right, mortal, that thing is going to be a thing. So I should really, you know, get on with this what am I doing here thing. So I essentially, that was when I decided to drop out of school from getting my teacher's license. I already had a degree in environmental science and I'd already been working with kids, but I didn't really know what the plan was going to be. And I found myself without a job for the summer and I decided I'm going to drive from Texas to Washington state, get on a ferry, go to the San Juan Islands and meet orcas. And I had no idea why I decided that was what I had to do at that exact moment, but I knew (laughs) that that was exactly what I had to do. And so I drove across the country, got on that boat, and just, you know, the weather was intense the morning that we were supposed to go out on the boat. I mean, five-foot waves hitting the boat. They were thinking about turning around. All the old ladies that had paid their good money to be on the boat, too, were just shivering and super angry looking that they were doing this. They were like, what were we thinking? And here I am in this. I mean, the raincoat was so long on me that it went under my feet. It was one of those giant yellow fisherman things. And I'm so small. It was I was basically sliding around on it. It was like wearing a full footy pajama rain jacket. So I'm laughing hysterically holding onto the back of this boat like I just won the lottery. And all the other people were essentially getting more and more irritated at how much fun I was having because they could not get it at all. They were not on board with that. This up and down wave splashing thing being fun. Ironically not on board. (laughs) Not on board, yeah. So we get, you know, kind of out in the channel and all of a sudden the water gets really calm it's, you know, maybe one foot wake at the very most. And so I look overboard for the first time I was actually able to get closest to the edge and I just see an orca. It's right there. It's so close to our boat. I could almost just reach out and touch it. And of course, the captains start freaking out because they're endangered species and you are not allowed to be that close to them with your boat. And you could lose your whole like permitting license to take people on tours if they get that close to you. But they had stealth mode snuck up to the boat right next to me. It was almost like they were honing in on me or something. And then another orca comes by and swims upside down directly towards me. And when they swim upside down, you can see into their eyes. So it was literally looking at me and we were making eye contact for a good 30 seconds before they got, you know, away from the pod. 
And then basically what happened after that was just the whole pod started jumping out of the water and like slapping their tails and doing full spy hops. And the captains of the boat were literally like, we've been doing this for three years. We have never seen them freak out like this. This is epic. This is the best whale tour we've ever been on. And I was like, okay, something is up. Like there's a reason that I came here. There's a reason that they were so excited to see me. Well, they heard that you'd driven all the way. Yeah, they heard. They got the memo. So somehow we were on the same page. So it turns out that that specific pod is one of the most endangered, essentially, species on the planet because orcas are so familial that they're kind of like ants where a lone orca wouldn't survive. And so basically they need as many members of their pod intact as possible in order to stand a chance because... They swim the most of any other animal, and they travel the longest distance of any animal on Earth throughout their lifetime. They never stop swimming. So basically, orcas are super vulnerable because they need a lot of energy to you know, contain a metabolism that goes that high and full-on for an animal <laughs> that size that can live over 100 years in the wild. So these are you know, super eaters. They need to eat a lot of food. And that specific pod, it's called the J-Pod, the one that I visited, they only eat salmon. So each uh, orca species and each pod, they eat a unique type of animal. So there's another pod that is a migrant pod that lives in that same area, but they eat seals. And so as a mermaid, this is important to know, because if you're going to swim with wild orcas, you need to swim with the one that only eats fish. Not the one that eats seals. So you need to... Scientists can recognize individual orcas, pick out which pod you're looking at, and then determine if it's safe for you to get in the water. Now, I'm not saying go swim with orcas. This takes a ton of work, but that's actually my main goal as a mermaid is to be the first mermaid to swim with wild orcas and and film it. And I want to go either to Washington or to New Zealand because there are pods there that eat stingrays in New Zealand. So totally not interested in eating me that's what they hunt <laughs> that's their food and so if they see me they're gonna be like what is that and like maybe come explore me but there's already a woman swimming with that orca pod on a regular basis so they're they're not interested in eating people there's like this myth that they're these super vicious like killer animals actually there's no recorded incident ever of a wild orca killing or attacking a person. And so they're actually really safe by my standards of swimming with large predatory animals. They literally are the apex predator of the ocean. They eat great white sharks' livers. That's one of their favorite foods, certain pods. They literally specialize in hunting. Well, even, great the, even the monster movie Orca, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you saw that. I couldn't watch it. But like even much. that one, even that one where it's like the guy is being hunted by this Orca, it's because he killed its baby. Like it's a revenge I'd story. I'd hunt you too. Yeah. <laughs> You better believe it. It's not just like this is a blind, merciless killer. It's like this orca has actually got a good reason to be going after this guy. Yeah. Um, I totally appreciate you sh- yeah, sharing that with people in case they haven't seen it. Well, yeah, that and then also, uh, you know, I couldn't even bring myself to watch Blackfish. But I definitely watched it. That's But, like, that issue of us getting 
a clearer picture of the emotional lives of these other creatures. I mean, this is sort of a tangent, but like David Pierce, who is very vocal in the transhumanism community as uh, an anti-speciesist and is a really strong advocate of laboratory meat because he, he realizes we're not going to be able to get human beings to stop eating meat, but we might be able to get them to stop eating animals. <laughs> and so he's, you know, he makes all these cases about, about a homologous brain anatomy in chickens and pigs and, and cows and in human beings. And basically says like, you know, this, you know, this pig has the emotional development or emotional maturity of like a five-year-old child. And, you know, can you, or like chickens have the emotional development of like a two-year-old. So could you really recast this factory chicken farm in that light and see this as, you know, we're, we're farming and eating two, like two-year-olds, Gates. you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, like the, this, this notion of that this is the, this is equivalent suffering in that respect. Mm -hmm. And so at any rate, yeah, the orca thing, you know, my mom, I, I, I didn't really get into marine biology all the way, but I was, I, it really does feel like it, it was a coin flip for me growing up between whales and dinosaurs i think very early like they appealed for, to me for the same reason it's like giant and mysterious and terrifying mm -hmm. and i had a i had this even though i was well into the dinosaur side of it by age 11 or 12 my mom had this dream that I, when i was living in orlando with my family at that time that i would grow up and become a whale trainer at SeaWorld, and that the whale uh the, the, well Dolphin, orca. Yeah, their purpose is technically they are, like yes, this dolphin. Yeah. They are technically, but they are cetaceans uh, that it 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 breached out of the water and landed on me on accident and broke my back. Oof. And she she woke up from this dream and was like, "Promise me you will never be a, become a whale trainer." And I was like, Psh, "Of course not, mom. All I want to be is a paleontologist." But then in college, I took a marine mammal class and very nearly just was like fuck it like i'm gonna like i was i was ready to move to california and go into the the marine but you know marine biology of whales and dolphins and then i remembered that dream that my mom had and i was like well shit i guess i can't do that <laughs> well yeah i mean that and that and also that i had this sinus issue that has prevented me from getting a scuba certification like i can't go underwater without oh, a headache yeah. And it just feels like that's, you know, when you're talking about like where you're best applied, that it's one thing to love the sea and it's another thing to sort of like get lost in it. And I just get the sense that, you know, there's the, the lure of mystery is often too great for people. And that I might've, not that I would have necessarily been killed by a whale, but that had I been able to spend more time underwater, I would not be as useful to my human companions, you know. That, that it's interesting. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. And perhaps not even like on, on topic, but no, it's, it's, it's whales good. and mystery and that whole through line of the dragon or the leviathan. And they're sort of functioning as an archetype of our own 
mysterious transcendent unconscious minds you know and like the connection that whales have with extra-political lore you know the folklore surrounding aliens and aliens communicating telepathically with whales and all this shit and i don't know i don't know where i'm going with that but i i just you know the part of me that gets off on new agey weirdness is definitely the same part of me that gets off on whales me too so i don't know i personally um i had this experience where i was at a healing retreat and we had just done tapping which is eft um and we're trying to focus on our divine purpose and what it is we're supposed to be doing in the world so i was also work trading for my spot at this epic retreat working in the kitchen and so my job at the time was to take the trash out of course taking the trash out is a super triggering experience for me because it comes out in a plastic bag and it's full of plastic (laughs) single-use plastics in plastic so for me i'm like the worst person for this task (laughs) at a healing retreat so it's you know i'm completely triggered out the wall and I'm walking down this long driveway to take the trash out to the street from this like ranch house that we're staying in. And while I'm walking, I just start hearing whale noises and they were not in English. (laughs) They were in whale, but it was super clear to me what they were saying, which was this stuff has to stop going into the ocean. This stuff is killing us. Like, we're full of it. It's in our stomachs. It's causing us to strand ourselves because we're in so much pain because we've swallowed so much of it. And essentially, it's messing with our hormones, that estrogen thing I was talking about earlier. So I got this super clear, essentially, my teacher calls it a download. Mm -hmm. So I got this download that I'm here because I get it, you know, and I get it on a level that a lot of people, quote unquote, like me are not getting it. You know, Instagram model level, I'm not getting it. So essentially, my life purpose is as I see it at this time, and of course it's constantly becoming more and more clear and evolving as the world is changing, it, you know, veers on and off course a little bit more. Um, It's essentially to just be a voice for whales because we don't speak whales. (laughs) But they are trying to talk to us right now is my genuine belief. And I've seen all this, you know, these posts on the Internet about how we're going to be talking to dolphins real soon. Yeah. Well, I can promise you that they're not going to say what I think a lot of people imagine them saying. I think they're going to say, you know, fuck you. (laughs) I don't think it's going to be this like. I'm so stoked that we're talking. It's like, what have you done? (laughs) You know, like that's not, that's where I see this going essentially is that unless we essentially make peace with these species by respecting them more, then why would they want to talk to us? A, and then B, what would they say? You know, I've always, that, that particular issue of the, like using AI to crack dolphin language and then, talking to them it's like well okay but who's who's ai are we using here and like if it's you know if google is talking to dolphins then i have a real hard time sort of accepting that what they say is 
true that they're saying what they think yeah that, that, that we're really, interpreting it yeah, yeah like like you know the internal research that cell phone companies are doing on whether or not cell phones cause cancer and then they're just you know shutting all that research in a in you know a file drawer somewhere and yes if, 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 traditional epa tactics exactly. yeah if we do if we do end up talking to dolphins and they're like dude fuck you you know then, <laughs> like, are we really gonna hear that are i don't, really I don't think find so out, i know? don't really have to wait to hear that if i were a dolphin honest to god that's what i would say to me i mean i'm actually going to hawaii this summer with the intention of swimming with the wild spinner dolphins that hang out in specific bays but Part of why I'm going is because this may be the last time that people can do this. They're voting. Noah is voting in August, which is right when I'm leaving Hawaii, to consider banning access to those bays for, for humans, except for with research permission and having it be you know literally patrolled and have it be essentially a marine preserve. Because one of the most intact coral reefs in all of Hawaii is in one of the bays that I'm going to be living near that I'm intentionally going to to see dolphins and interact with them because spinner dolphins this is the big island Mm -hmm. so on the west coast there's a couple of bays and one of them is a state park near the Captain Cook area where there's dolphins but the thing is a lot of people don't understand that by 11 a.m by 10 a.m those dolphins are actually sleeping so dolphins turn off half their brain when they sleep they have their one eye open so they can see sense movement and that part will kick in if there's a predatory response or something exciting is happening like humans jumping off a boat and swimming towards them so essentially this NOAA regulation response is related to irresponsible tourism. And so I don't want to be one of those people. If I'm out there in the bay, it's going to be at 6 a.m. When they're just coming in from hunting, they hunt at night. And they're super active and perhaps actually interested in interacting with me. Mm. So there's this deep, in my opinion, misunderstanding on people's parts. They're like, oh, the dolphins are just right here and they're going to play with us. It's like, they're actually trying to sleep right now, and you could be killing them by exhausting them by constantly dropping boatloads of tourists off in their habitat. So there's this seemingly deep misunderstanding going on, specifically with dolphins, about humans because we're so interested in we're so interested in them. We love them, and yet, are we loving them to death? Essentially, sure. in Hawaii, <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's sort of you know it gets back to. You know, you're going to go swim with dolphins, like, for what might be one of the last occasions that somebody gets to do this in this area, mm-hmm. and you're not going to put it on Instagram? Like, is that is that, uh, in a way, like, shirking a moral responsibility that you have to allow people an opportunity to experience something vicariously that they will not be able to, to it'll, experience It'll be on YouTube. Or? So okay. I don't I don't use Instagram, but I I am creating a Patreon and a YouTube account where people can actually access responsible tourist information about how to visit wild places respectfully. So I take essentially my really research based information I have about how to safely interact with wild animals of pretty much all varieties. I've had close encounters with bears, mountain lions. I've touched sharks in the wild. I've interacted with some of people's worst just the sand tiger shark nothing super dangerous but they are on the top 20 list for shark bites so that was when i was nine that was my first large animal encounter so essentially as i was saying about orcas 
the reason I personally know that I'm, if anybody, the right person for this task of showing people what orcas actually are is because I have had experiences with animals that scare people to death many times. I've been within five feet of a bear and I'm fine. I've been within 50 feet of a mountain lion and I'm fine. That was while hiking alone in Big Bend National Park. The bear experience was at night hiking alone on a trail in North Carolina. So, and the shark was when I was nine and I was just eight or nine and I was standing in, you know, knee deep water and it just came and brushed its entire five foot shark, brushed its entire body against me. And it was such shallow water that it really had no business being there. And it's fin and upper body was entirely out of the water. My grandpa was totally white. And I, I saw his face before I actually saw the shark. I felt it. And my grandpa couldn't even get shark out before it was touching me because he was just in total shock. And all of these experience I've all of these experiences I've had, I've never been injured. And I've literally sat my sunglasses on a rattlesnake within the last five months. No issues. Like dangerous wildlife finds me, gets as close to me as possible, and then completely leaves me alone. And so I can't really explain why, but that seems to be one of my gifts, is that animals are A, attracted to me, and then B, have no interest in eating me. And I think the reason is because they sense some sort of, like, understanding that it's they're not, not used to. Thing. It could also be because I'm a gender, but I don't want to go there. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't really explain it, but I really, for some reason, feel qualified, I guess, to tell people how to interact with wildlife because I've gotten a lot of these really, quote-unquote, rare experiences to interact with wildlife that usually end badly for people, and yet I'm fine. So I can't really explain it. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, though, is, like, if it... On the one hand, like, it might have something to do with the fact that you don't have the fear, right? Sharks won't even get close to you if you're afraid of them, like, 90% of the time. They can sense your heart rate through their extra sense, their lateral line system. It's like a second nervous system. If your heart rate is accelerated over a certain amount, they'll stay as far away from you as possible. Everything, like, even great whites. Well, predators, yeah, predators generally don't want to... It's so risky to be one... You don't, they don't want to mess with it. You know, they they don't want to get, they don't want to risk getting kicked in the eyeball or whatever. You know, it's not. If it's not worth it. If it's not worth it, right. And I guess maybe it's just, you know, you're pretty small. That's another thing. Like, is it really worth the effort, you know, or the the risk? (laughs) To go after me. To go after me. Well, the thing is, in my opinion, with certain wildlife, in particular the bear, I did something wrong. And so that's another place where I feel like I can assist people is that I actually did some, I made an error in that encounter that could have and generally perhaps would have resulted in an attack. I snuck up on it. It didn't hear me coming. And so the general rule for being in bear habitat is that you're very loud. You should always be making noise. And so I was hiking alone at night, which typically people would tell you just don't do that. But of course I was 19 and didn't know what I would be doing someday in the world so I was just you know out for a hike enjoying nature alone listening to Pink Floyd just on a walk and suddenly there's an adult male black bear five feet away from me gnashing its teeth stomping its feet doing all the things they do right before they attack you so it was it had smelled me backed out of a bush and was full-on ready to charge me when I approached it so you know 
typically that would have been a really worst case scenario situation, but for some reason I seem to be protected <laughs> from these encounters. But essentially, so I want to share you, with people yeah. how to avoid even finding yourself in said situation. Same with the shark. I was swimming too close to someone live bait fishing when I was nine. I was mm. nine. I shouldn't have been held responsible for making that call, in my opinion, because I was never told not to do that. And yet, a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, a lot of adults even, though, don't know the basics of Wildlife 101, like animal behavior. Like, how do I go out and be you know, essentially respectful because yeah, when you're entering their habitat, it's in my opinion on you to prevent those kinds of encounters from going south. Well, I'm definitely, you know, I want my kids to have close up encounters with wild predators. So my plan was to throw them in with the chum, you know, <laughs> just at okay, least put kids. a cage in between them. Come on. Okay. It's you and a bunch of tuna heads. Let's go. Let's do it. Yeah, most people aren't that irresponsible, but yeah, you'd be surprised. I mean, and the same with the mountain lion encounter, you know, Big Bend is a known mountain lion area. They generally suggest not hiking alone, but I feel super confident in the backcountry alone. I made the call and, you know, I know what to do if you see a mountain lion. So when I saw one, instead of being scary, it was just this really cool encounter. And the way that I protected myself in that situation was actually that I knew it was there before it was close to me. And that's because I read the language that the birds are speaking. If birds get really loud or suddenly really quiet, both of those are times when you should pause and evaluate your surroundings. And the survivalist mm. does this. I'm constantly aware of on a whole landscape level, what the birds are doing because they're kind of the alarm system for the forest. And so because I sensed that now was the time for me to stop and pay attention, I heard the mountain lion moving through bushes below me on the cliff because the bush bushes were so thick it couldn't be completely silent. Mm. And so, yeah, it probably was stalking me, but I was able to protect myself by scaring it off. I, start, I used my whistle, made noise, and... It was gone, and I saw it jump clear across the trail, which was my 100% guarantee that, yes, it was a mountain lion, because nothing can jump like a mountain lion. <laughs> it's the most epic thing. Dang. Yeah, but basically, when you have these kinds of skills and you feel that comfortable outside, yeah, you're basically safe anywhere, I would argue. I mean, if you think about it, we used to live outside all the time. There wasn't really an inside, so you had to be constantly doing these things that a lot of people aren't even aware of how to do. So yeah. I, I'd like to see more people learning these things again, like kind of a revival of these senses. I mean, I, I keep I keep these skills sharp. I have a, a whistle I use with my roommates, nice. you know, and I'm like, whenever I encounter one, I try to just look as big as possible so yeah. that it doesn't try to eat me. Nice. Um, <laughs> You've encountered mountain lions. No, no, no. My my roommates. Oh, got it. Great. Yeah. No, but actually, no. There was a time. <laughs> in all seriousness, no. There was a time that I was out in Colorado in uh, Gold Hill, which is about half an hour west of Boulder, up in the mountains. And I was out with some friends, camping and partying, and and there was a a trail that I went off for a little while just to go explore by myself. And my friend's dog tagged along with me, and there's a, there was like a road cut you know, the access to campgrounds. So it's sort of, uh, you know, like sheer cliffs about 15 or 20 feet high on either side of the road. And the dog gets to the end of this little road cut and turns around at me and is just looking at me like, dude, what are you doing? Let's like, 
get out of there. Like, I never saw a mountain lion. But you just knew. But I really, but it was one of those moments where you're suddenly like, what am I doing here? And I looked up and around and I didn't see anything. But I, I you know, I did, I, I had that, like, I got the chills. And yeah, we have primitive, you know, built-in senses yeah. to keep us safe. And so, yeah, essentially my goal in talking about all this is not to scare people and make you think like around every corner is a mountain. No, I've been in the woods a bajillion times and I've literally only seen a mountain lion once and I've only seen a bear maybe five times in all of my time outside. I've only seen five sharks in my life and all my time in the ocean and not a single time did I feel scared of any, especially sharks. Like they're so misunderstood. People have this totally off perspective in my opinion on what it's like to be around sharks. And so, you know, it's not to scare you. It's mostly just to let you know that, you know, if you're interested in that, if someone like me can do it, you can definitely go outside and be safe, basically. Mm. I'm I'm a hundred pound girl. <laughs> if I can do it, you're probably gonna be fine. <laughs> so it's my sister's birthday today and June fifth. And so she's got this whole thing about sharks. And 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 maybe like I'll just throw this out there and leave it there and, and then you can, you know, Whatever comes up for you, and we can wrap it up here. Kind awesome. of, but like, she's got this whole thing about how she thinks that sharks are a totem or an archetype of the sacred feminine. You know, she just has this notion that it's sort of like aligned with the archetype of the Black Madonna, you know, the Dark Mother, and that you know, there's this thing about the rep- the repression of the feminine and how like it shows up in this way that these you know that this ordinarily safe energy which we all possess or contain is made other and then in making it other it becomes an object of our fear and as an object of our fear it becomes a legitimate danger or threat to us and that there is this sense that i guess going back to you know you're talking about you don't like being associated with sirens that there's this thing about the mermaid that is that, that it's like the othering of, of the feminine in some way that, you know, that it's not even in a healthy way, it provides us a bridge back to our, our non-humanity. And in this other way, it's become a part of this archetypal complex that's associated with us being sort of drawn, lured, trick deceived back into the ocean and there's this like merman is like relatively rare there's something about it that's again like you know the water and the feminine and all of that stuff so i don't know that's interesting that you say that i have two quick responses one is that actually the first ever known depiction of a mermaid was actually of a merman Get so it's interesting that you say that. Yeah, it's actually... Yeah, in Syria, that was the first known... Uh, there's a carving on a bench, and it's of a merman. Is that is that before the... Uh, what's the woman that became the Starbucks logo? Where she's got the twin... She's, the first, she's the first depicted mermaid. Okay. Yeah, so there's there's that archetype, which is one of the oldest known that actually has some religious direct religious symbology but you know 
actually people try to trace the merman that I'm speaking of back to Atlantean. So, you know, we could go into a whole other conversation about that. And you can look up Doreen Virtue's book, Mermaiding 101, if you want more information on that. She has all these theories that I won't necessarily support or deny, just saying it's food for thought. But yeah, that's interesting. You brought up mermaid versus merman, when in fact that is the first known depiction. So a lot of people would argue mermaids don't actually have a gender, and the to gender mermaid is essentially inherently wrong, because that's, you know, part of the nature of it. But I definitely... I don't have necessarily a strong perspective either way on that, but I do know that there's, like, a large subset of, like, either historians who think about mermaid you know, throughout history that feel that mermaids essentially were gendered, like, much later, whereas before they were just kind of this Hmm. originally androgynous species, essentially. Um, But then also about on the matter of sharks, I think also, again, if you look back historically, many cultures did not fear sharks at all. In fact, a lot of cultures you know, essentially worship sharks or would even try to become shark-like in in their ways because they connected them to, like, the warrior, which is, again, archetypically masculine, which is interesting. Right. And so in my study... Wall Street. Yeah, in my study of sharks, what I've found throughout history is that basically there was this European depiction when there was a shipwreck where the first recorded shark attacks occurred, and that was kind of where this fear of the shark thing kind of started for Western culture. And then it's morphed over the years into, through the media, this fear archetype, whereas there are many people around the world who still don't think of shark and think scary. So I think it's really honestly Americanized to be really afraid of sharks. I mean, why else would Australian people even still go in the ocean? (laughs) You know, it's really, and I would argue, an Americanized thing to be afraid of of sharks. It's definitely like when I was in Byron Bay in February, I was just talking with a friend of mine that, I mean, they have great whites in Byron Bay. All the time. All the time. Literally all, they live there, yeah. And people still swim. Yeah. And (laughs) it was funny because, you know, my, they still have, you know, infrequent, but occasional shark attacks Mm -hmm. there too. And my buddy who had moved there from the UK, you know, said, well, how, you know, how safe is it to swim here? And his buddy, his Australian buddy said, oh, totally safe, totally safe. And they're like, okay, but, uh, you know, shark attack happened last week. He's like, yeah, yeah, but they're not going to come after you. And he's like, but the shark attack was of a 40-year-old British guy. You know, like, it was just what it, they're like, no, 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 really, it's okay. It's just like a weird coincidence that this, <laughs> that this happened. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, if you look at the... I've spent actually quite a bit of time dissecting the international shark attack file. It's public not information you can access it whenever uh-huh. you want. So I've I've actually literally studied every single shark attack that's ever been recorded and looked for looked at patterns, looked at all these different things. Sharks are actually my number one interest area along with orcas. So basically large charismatic predatory megafauna of the ocean or that's my jam. Even though I'm an aquatic mermaid for now, you know, I plan mm-hmm. on changing that eventually. But essentially what I've found is that literally vending machines in America kill more people annually than the total global deaths by sharks. So for me, it's absurd, you know, and again, very American to think that sharks are the enemy. 
<laughs> but I mean, vending yeah, machines are really perfectly safe as long as you approach them with respect. Yeah, just like you know, shirts. like you, you can, you know, as long as you know you're you're near one, you just don't don't harass it, yeah. right? Don't pull its tail. Don't pull its tail. You know, <laughs> no selfies. If you're if you're attacked by a vending machine, then poke it in the eye. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> or on the nose, right? That's the other one. Gills are a better bet. Yeah. Like in the coin slot. Just yeah. Okay, well, that's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> before we go, like, do you have a question or a message for the unborn future listeners of this show? I totally do. So this is, you know, again, I've, I've actually received some criticism on this already. I'm very young in my career. I've only been a professional educational mermaid for less than a year now. So it's very new and yet gone very far so far. So let's keep the momentum up. Yeah. Yeah, So I'm super stoked on what's happening right now. But what I want to say to you specifically girls is that you can do whatever you want to do and you can do it however you want to do it. I know that's not something that is often said to you when you're growing up and you may not even have any role models or mentors to look to that look like you or are like you in any way, but hopefully I can be a role model for some of you in in, in at least just letting you know that you know it's possible to forge your own identity and to decide how you're going to do what you're going to do. So that's what I'd like to say. Awesome. Thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the Mind Pod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again.